Well, I wonder, how do you feel when things feel out of control? How do you react? How, how do you respond when everything seems to be falling apart around you? Just think back, if you can, to the last week. Think about the things you felt, the things you've said, the things you've done in response to all that's been happening. There are times in life, aren't there, when it feels as though the, the rug has been pulled from beneath our feet, when, when things seem to be spiralling out of control and we don't know what to do. Perhaps you felt a bit like that this week. If you have, then you can imagine what the disciples would have been feeling like in John chapter 18. Because we come to John 18, it seems like things are spiralling out of control. It seems like everything is going wrong for Jesus and his friends. Things look bad and they're going downhill fast. That's what it looks like on the surface. And I'm sure that's what the disciples would have been feeling. But John, the author, wants us to see that, well, that actually that's not the reality. You see, as John records these final hours of Jesus' life, he wants us to see beyond the surface of the events to the reality. He wants us to see what is really happening as Jesus moves closer and closer to the cross. He wants us to see the reality. And so this morning we're going to see three things together. Three realities of what is happening to Jesus on that night before his crucifixion. And the first thing that we see is that Jesus is not weak, but powerful. He's not weak, but powerful. Just uh, look with me at chapter 18, verse 1 again. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Jesus has finished praying for his disciples, and next he heads straight for a place that they know well, a place that would have been familiar to him, his friends, and to Judas, a place that he knows Judas would have come looking for him. And then sure enough, in verse 3, here comes a detachment of soldiers led by Judas himself. And so straight away it appears that Jesus has walked into a trap. He's surrounded by his enemies, walked straight into the hands of his betrayer. But then look what it says again in verse 4. The soldiers are approaching, and it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus hasn't stumbled into a trap. He's not been caught off guard. No, he knows exactly what is about to happen. And so he doesn't try and run or, or hide, but instead he walks right up to the men that are about to arrest him and asks them who they're looking for. The soldiers say, Jesus of Nazareth, he, he's the one that we want. And, and Jesus replies, oh, that's me. I am he. And then we read in verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus identifies himself and this detachment of probably 500 or so trained armed soldiers 
fall to the ground. Just imagine that for a moment if you can. Think back to the good old days of meeting in real life in the King Centre. Imagine that when I stood up and said good morning, every single person in that hall fell flat on their face. Imagine that because that is what happens here. Jesus speaks and the soldiers fall down. And did you notice what Jesus said to the soldiers? I am he. We've seen a number of times in John's Gospel, haven't we, that that isn't Jesus simply identifying himself, saying, I'm the one that you're looking for. No, as Gareth has already pointed out for us, this is the outrageous claim that Jesus is God. It's the name that echoes God's words to Moses in Exodus, I am who I am. And back in Moses' day, back in the Old Testament, when God came close to people, the result was that they were completely overwhelmed. Because of his glory, his holiness, his majesty, his power, God was literally unapproachable by sinful people. And so here is Jesus identifies himself as the living God. Well, it's as though the, the veil is drawn back for just a moment. And the soldiers catch a glimpse of the reality of who Jesus really is. For a moment they see not a weak-looking, cornered man on the run, but the Lord of glory. Just three words. Three words and 500 men fall to the ground. And Jesus could have left them there, couldn't he? He could have left them, he could have walked away. And no amount of soldiers, no army, however huge, could have stopped him. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Verse 7, just look there. You can imagine Jesus waiting for the soldiers to get up off the floor and sort of brush themselves down before asking them again, who was it that you're looking for? They reply, maybe a little bit more nervously this time, Jesus of Nazareth? And then in verse 8, he hands himself to them. And so you see, Jesus is the one in control. Not the detachment of Roman soldiers, not the authorities that sent them, but Jesus, the great I am. He's the one in control here. And you know, as we get closer to Easter... I think lots of people see Jesus a a bit like an unfortunate victim. A a religious guy who had some pretty good things to say, but uh, got on the wrong side of some powerful people, and so met a a tragic end. Uh, But I hope you can see that's not what John wants us to think. Uh, John wants us to see that Jesus is no victim. He was not overwhelmed or outplayed by a more powerful enemy. Now he's in complete control. Even when things look like they've gone wrong, even when the enemy seemed to have the upper hand, Jesus is in control. And the same is true today. As you check the BBC News feed for the 50th time uh, today, or uh, as you brave the supermarkets this week, it can feel like things have got out of control. Maybe we even begin to wonder whether 
whether Jesus really has this, or whether he's just lost his grip on the world. Or think beyond coronavirus for a moment. Think to the Christians around the world who face daily persecution. Those whose lives are under threat, not from a virus, but from people who would kill them if they found out they were believers in Jesus. You see, when life feels hard, when, when opposition seems overwhelming, it can be easy to think that God has lost his grip, that things have spiralled out of control. But that's not the reality. John 18 reminds us that Jesus is the I am. He is in control. He's even in control of the very people who have come to arrest him and eventually kill him. And he's still in control today. So that's the first thing that John wants us to see. Jesus is not weak, but powerful. Uh, the second thing we see is that Jesus is not guilty, but innocent. He's not guilty, but innocent. You would have all heard the saying, there's no smoke without fire. And so while some people might think that Jesus was an unfortunate victim, there'll be plenty of others that think, well, he got what was coming to him. There's no way that these Jewish and Roman authorities would just kill someone with no reason. But again, as we move closer to Jesus' trial, we see that that's exactly what is happening. Verse 10, if you look there, good old Peter, he still doesn't really get it. And so he sees the danger, he sees they're, they're surrounded and tries to fight his way out. He lashes out and cuts off a servant's ear. But then in verse 11, Jesus puts a stop to that violence. He won't fight or lash out. He won't give the authorities something to charge him with. No, Jesus is innocent. And he'll remain innocent, whatever happens. And so instead, he allows himself to be arrested and taken away. And, and with Peter following close behind, Jesus is led to one of the most powerful men in the country, to Annas. Annas had been the high priest uh, up until a few years before. The, the Romans had deposed him, got rid of him. Uh, but the Jews still called him by that title because, well, they thought that it was an office that couldn't just be done away with by the Romans. And so he's an important guy, and Jesus is taken to him first. And it, he's taken for what seems to be this kind of nighttime, uh, behind-closed-doors interrogation. In verse 19, if you look across there, uh, the interrogation begins. And then in verse 20, we see Jesus' response. Look at verse 20 with me. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. You, you see the point Jesus is making? He says to Anna so, and to all those listening, you might have resorted to these underhand tactics to, to secret meetings and nighttime interrogations. You might have done those things, but that's not how I've been acting. All my teaching has been in the public, where everyone can hear. I've got nothing to hide, says Jesus. Why don't you go and ask the witnesses, the witnesses that you should have brought to this trial? Ask them what they've heard. In other words, it's the court that's corrupt 
not Jesus. And then the contrast becomes even clearer as we come to verse 22. Jesus makes this reasonable request for witnesses. What does he get in response? A slap in the face. Those accusing Jesus have no real evidence. And so they resort to just slapping him around a bit. And then finally, in verse 23, Jesus talks about the difference between right and wrong. And his point is clear. He is the one in the right. He is the one speaking truth. They're the ones acting in the dark. They're the ones full of lies and deceit. And so despite what the religious leaders would like the people to think, despite what many people in the world today would like us to think, Jesus is in the right. Jesus is on the side of truth because he is the truth. And so again, John wants us to see the reality. He wants us to see that far from being uh, a weak and uh, helpless victim at the hands of the Roman soldiers, Jesus is the all-powerful I am. The one with complete knowledge, complete control of all that is happening. And far from being a a guilty, blasphemous liar, Jesus is the perfectly innocent one. The one who speaks the truth in the face of the enemy's lies. But then if all that is true, if that is the reality, if that's the view of Jesus that we're meant to have, well, the question that it leaves us with is, why? Why is this happening? Why is the innocent, powerful Son of God allowing all these things to happen to him? And the answer to that question brings us to the last thing that we're going to see. That Jesus is not a failure, but the Saviour. You see, the religious people, uh, they're not the only people to do wrong in this passage, are they? It begins with Judas betraying Jesus for some money. And it ends with Peter's denial of Jesus. And so whether it's friend or Pharisee, follower or soldier, everyone here is guilty. Guilty of betraying, denying and abusing the Son of God. And it's in that contrast, the contrast between Jesus and everyone else, that we begin to understand what's really going on here. Just look back across at verse 11 with me. Look at what Jesus says just after Peter's attempt to fight off the soldiers. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Here's the reason Jesus won't resist. Here's the reason he allows himself to be taken away. Here is the reason why God himself allows a person to slap him in the face. It's because Jesus has come to drink the cup. Now, if we went back into the Old Testament, we'd see that the cup symbolises God's anger, his wrath and judgment against all that is evil in the world. Just listen to how Jeremiah the prophet talks about the cup. He says this, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. 
when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. The cup symbolises God's right anger, his wrath. Because the Bible's clear, isn't it, that God is holy. He is perfect and just and righteous. And so he always loves what is good and hates what is evil. He will judge all evil, all injustice, because he's angry at those things. And you know, I think that most people like that idea of a God. They like the idea of a God who has promised to deal with evil and injustice. The horrible things that we see in the world around us. They like that sort of God. The problem comes though when well, when we begin to realise that in order to deal with those things, God must deal with us. Because the Bible also tells us that each and every one of us have this, this deep-rooted self-centeredness. Something in us that would always put ourselves first before others. It's been quite shocking, hasn't it, to see some of the scenes in supermarkets over the last week. But, you know, the reality is that all of us have that same selfishness lurking inside us. Some of us are just a bit better at covering it up than others. And the very worst thing about that selfishness is that it pushes God out of the picture. It rejects God as the rightful ruler of our lives and tries to live as though we're on the throne, as though we make the decisions, we're in charge. That rejection, that denial of God, that is what the Bible calls sin. And that means that just like Judas, just like the religious officials, just like Peter, well, in the end all of us deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. Because all of us are guilty. All of us are sinful. But here's the astonishing thing about John chapter 18. The, the astonishing thing is that we all deserve this cup, but Jesus is the one who drinks it. The stories of, of sacrifice move us, don't they? There's been countless good news stories this week uh, of people making sacrifices, particularly those, uh, as we've heard already this morning, those in the NHS, uh, making sacrifices for the good of others. But what happens here in John 18 goes beyond any human sacrifice. Because it's here that we see the God of the universe, the, the creator and ruler of all things, the one who we have ignored and rejected, choosing to lay down his life. Choosing to lay down his life for people who have lived their life hating him. This is a sacrifice unlike any other. Because here Jesus chooses to die for his enemies. And you know that includes people like your next door neighbour. It includes the bravest NHS worker. It includes your elderly grandparents. It includes you. And it includes me. John 18 is good news for God's enemies. Which means it's good news for all of us. It's good news for those who will acknowledge and confess their sin to God. Good news for those who will trust in the one who drinks the cup of God's wrath uh, 
so they don't have to. It's why Caiaphas spoke more than he knew. John reminds us, doesn't he, in verse 14, that it would be good if one man died for the people. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see more of what that means. Why the death of one man is such good news for people. But for now, John wants us to see that, well, that Jesus is in control. He is the perfect, powerful Son of God. And he chooses to go to the cross for us. And so as we close, I want to just leave you with a couple of questions. Firstly, how do you view yourself? Do you think of yourself as a, a generally good person, someone that God must be pretty pleased with? Or can you see yourself standing with Judas and Peter and the religious leaders? All people who deserve God's anger for the way that we've treated him. Because it's until we do that, until we see ourselves rightly, until we see the horror of our sin and the punishment it deserves, we will never see the cross for what it really is. We'll always wonder why Good Friday is good. How do you view yourself? And then, how do you view Jesus? Is he just another victim of some power-hungry priests? Is he another failed and forgotten religious leader? Is he a a nice, good teacher, someone who has words to inspire us, particularly at a difficult time like this? Or do you see the reality? Do you see that Jesus is the great I Am, the Lord of glory, the one who has complete authority and power and the one who uses all that power, all that control to choose to die for you. Let's pray that we wouldn't see Jesus as a failure, but as the saviour. The one who's shown his love for us by dying in our place. And the one that we can trust because he has all control. Then, now and in the future. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see and understand the truth this morning. The reality that we are great sinners, but that Christ is a greater saviour. We thank and praise you for Jesus this morning, the one who drank the cup for us. Help us to trust him and to live in the light of the gospel, the good news this week. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.